good morning. Good to be home. I've told folks uh, this before, so if you've heard it, uh, laugh at it anyway. Uh, people ask me uh, where I live, and I tell them on Interstate 5, because I'm back and forth between the north and here, so I don't hear her laugh at all, so you must have all heard it before. <laughs> so, well, I understand that we're studying the uh, epistle to the Galatians, and uh, we're at uh, verse 11 of the second chapter. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, starting at verse 11 in the... Uh, semi-authorized version, the New King James. I think it gives us a little better picture of at least some words in here that are clearer. Is that better? Okay, some words are a little clearer in the King James than they are uh, in the New King James than they are in King James, so. Um, Verse 11, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And we are assured that the Lord will add his blessings to the reading of his precious word. I am at a slight disadvantage not having been here for the uh, preceding ministry, so I don't know exactly what you've received as an outline or not, and I'm going to take some time to, to 
to set forth an outline. You know, when we <clears throat> go through a book particularly, we're quite good at, at doing the analysis and analytical study, but we don't really look how things fit together synthetically. And by synthetically, I mean that there is a broad message, very specific, but a broad message that entails, first of all, in the Bible, all 66 books. There's a thin red line that runs through all of those books, narrative, prose, poem, prophecy, whatever it is, there is one message, clear message that runs through all of that. And so we need to view the Bible as a whole. And then each individual book also has a given message. Rather than just analyzing, going through verse by verse, without understanding the broad implication of the message, we're really not getting a full understanding of that particular book or of the Bible as a whole. So it's imperative, important, to know what the book is about. Now, the book of Galatians deals with two principal things. The primary thing is the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace. The secondary thing is the authority of the apostle Paul, both in uh, in um, Corinthians and Galatians, there is an attack on the message, but that attack is through the avenue of attacking the apostle, his authority. And so Paul, I think, is now across the Aegean Sea, away from the Galatians in Macedonia, heading towards Corinth. When he gets the message of the problems going on in, in Galatia, in the churches of Galatia, and he takes the time to write this letter, and he writes it himself. Oftentimes, because of his sight, I believe, he had someone else, a secretary, basically, to write it for him, but he took the time himself to write this particular epistle. Now, the breakdown of this epistle is in three sections, easy sections. Chapter 1 and 2 is section 1, chapter 3 and 4, section 2, and chapter 4 and 5 is, uh, I mean, 5 and 6 is uh, section 3. The first section is, if we could put a personality on it, it is Paul that is in view. And it is personal in nature. The second section, chapter 3 and 4, is doctrinal in nature, and the principal individual that is brought up is Abraham. And then the third section, chapter 5 and 6, applies to us, principally. It is practical in nature, and you can put your own name in there. The application is very definitely to us. 
Paul also gives us an indication in these three sections of where the gospel fits in. In section one, he says, the gospel is from God. The source of the gospel is that it didn't come by man, but it came from God. As to the defense of the gospel, he says the gospel in, in, in the middle section, chapter 3 and 4, he says the gospel is superior to the law. Now there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect. God ordained it. But it has a completely different place than the gospel. And the gospel is superior to the law. And then finally, he says, the application of the gospel is by the Spirit of God in the last section, chapter 5 and chapter 6. It is the gospel of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1 and the preceding verses in chap of chapter 2, up to the point where we began to read, Paul presents the issue of the gospel and he, he sets forth the anathema for those that pervert the gospel. In chapter 1, we read that. And so he holds the gospel up. He says, you're attacking the gospel by applying law. That is a perversion of the gospel, and in fact, what you're teaching is no gospel at all. And then he goes to the defense of his apostleship. He says, first of all, by virtue of my conversion, I, I wasn't through an intermediary, a man, but it came directly from God. My conversion was on the road where I met the Lord directly. Most of us, all of us, there was an intermediary. Somebody stepped in, presented the gospel to us, but that's not the case with Paul. He says, and so here is one mark of my apostleship. The Lord directly brought me to himself. And then he comes on with the issue of his commission, his call. And again in chapter 1, he presents the aspects of his call. He was given the message of the gospel by revelation of God. Directly by revelation of God. And then finally in this first section of chapter 2, there is the confirmation where he meets up with some of the other apostles and they give him the right hand of fellowship, realizing that it is in fact the same gospel that they were teaching and preaching and they gave him the right hand of fellowship with just the directive that they were going to the Jews and he was going to the Gentiles. He and Barnabas were going to the Gentiles. And so we have these three elements where he brings up and, and sets forth his authority 
as an apostle. There were Greeks that were coming. Uh, there were uh, the um, Jews that were coming in with a message of believers, Gentile believers needing to be circumcised in order to be saved. In fact, we have that in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, do we not? The very first verse, you cannot be saved unless you, are, you add to the gospel circumcision. And this was plaguing the church in these years. And as I said, they were attacking the gospel, but they were attacking the gospel because the, the, um, the one who was adamantly sure of the gospel and presenting the gospel was Paul. And so they attacked Paul in that respect as well. And so we have these three sections of of uh, the structure of the epistle, as if it were. Now, Paul gives us a little picture of what's going on here, starting of verse 11, when, Paul, when somehow uh, Peter shows up. You know, Peter comes in for a little visit. And as soon he, uh, as he comes to visit, he's quite at home, and he's... Uh, in fellowship with the Gentile believers. Remember that, that uh, the Galatian churches, uh, Darby and Iconium and, uh, what is it, uh, Lystra, um, and then, of course, Antioch, were, were um, principally composed of Gentiles. There were Jews there, but it was principally com- composed of Gentiles. And so... Uh, Peter comes on down for a little visit, and he sits down in fellowship with the Gentile saints, as, uh, as you would, right? He's right in there with, uh, with them. And then you've got Jews coming in from Jerusalem, as if, suggesting as if they had the authority to present a different gospel. They came in, and what does Peter do? Dear old Peter, starts moving away from the Gentiles. Look at Peter's life. Peter, before the cross of the Lord, the Lord, he states to the Lord that, uh, you know, even though these ones here that, that were with him and with the Lord, well, you know, even though they may uh, give you up, they may reject you, Uh, I would never do that. And he's faced by a young girl, and he denies the Lord three times. Could you imagine the meeting of the eye between the Lord and Peter at the moment that that cock crowed? I did it. And then Peter is restored to his ministry. And he stands in the second chapter of the book of Acts. There he stands before these um, Jews, and he states to them as a closing to the message that he presents to them, this same Jesus whom you have crucified, God hath made both Lord and Christ. And 3,000 souls, they were 
pricked to the heart, and 3,000 souls were saved. But now again, what do we see with Peter? The vacillation that we find in our own lives so often. Peter is fearful of these men that are coming from Jerusalem. And he steps aside, he separates himself, that's what it says, withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Fear, Proverbs says, brings a snare, beareth a snare. Fear, fear that led to separation. In the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we read that by one spirit, we all are baptized into one body where there is neither Jew or Gentile. It's a terrible thing to have separation among brethren. We do it. Do we not? We follow a man, Luther, I'm a Lutheran. We follow a methodology, I am a Methodist. We follow an ordinance, I'm a Baptist. We say, well, we don't follow those sort of things, we have no denomination. But we have an assembly with a capital A. I belong to the assemblies. Or I am a brethren with a capital B. Or I am of the open assemblies or the closed, the exclusives or the inclusives. Separation. In the third chapter of 1 Corinthians, we see the issue that is brought out by carnal living, and one of those elements is separation. Separation. And Paul says to the, those Corinthians, he says, you know what, you've been along for three years. Now look at this, for three years, and you should be chewing on spiritual steak. Real food, spiritual food. But all you're doing is partaking of the milk of the word. You're still babes. In fact, you're stunted spiritually. Because why? You're following after Apollos or Cephas. You're separating. You're making divisions in the body of Christ. Stunted growth because of divisions. Because the Lord doesn't look favorably upon divisions. There is also the issue of, that is exercise or comes as an exercise of fearness of men where there is stumbling of others. Paul, uh, Peter was a principal that was looked up to. And dear brothers and sisters, don't think that you're not being looked at, that your life isn't viewed by others and that you can be a stumbling block to others. Not only did Peter withdraw himself, but the, uh, the Jews, the other Jews, withdrew themselves as well when these Judaizers came into the assembly. 
They followed Peter, even to the point where Barnabas was swayed. Paul could say, be a follower of me, even as I am of Christ Jesus. Follow me to the point that I follow Christ. We're susceptible to failure. You follow someone, you follow them to the point of, that they lead you to Christ, but not into their own failures. These dear saints followed Peter to that extent. And of course, here in the New King James, it gives us that word that, that uh, identifies them. Hypocrite. Hypocrite. The world just waits for you to stumble. You claim, you make a claim to Christ, and the world looks to you to stumble. And when you do, what did they say? You hypocrite. You're no different than I am. You're no different than I am. You pretend this piousness, but you're no different than I am. But that's not the word, uh, the way that God views, views hypocrisy. God says, I've redeemed you, purchased you by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. You are a new creature in Christ. Why are you living like an earthling. Why are you living as a natural man, you hypocrite? Because you are a new man, but you're living as an old man. Do you see the difference? The world says you're just like me when you fail. God says you failed by being something that you're not. And what you are is a new creature in Christ. Hypocrisy. And then the final element that we see in, in Peter's fearful, or uh, the fruit of his fearfulness, is compromise. Look at this uh, verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... They were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Compromise. Compromise of the truth. What is the truth of the gospel? Well, I think in its essence, it is salvation by grace through faith. Is it not? Salvation is all-encompassing. We tend to think of it Generally, that salvation is uh, being saved from the penalty of sin. But salvation carries itself all the way to the time when we're in the presence of God. Salvation, yes, it is from the, pres uh, from the uh, penalty of sin. But it is also from the power. We're saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. 
And we're saved from the presence of sin eventually. That's glorification. Salvation, God makes sure that all that he's about to give us through the work of the cross by the Lord Jesus is from the time that we come to know him till the time that we're in his presence for all of eternity. Salvation by grace. What is grace? There's a fairly famous, not fairly, it is a famous painting, I don't know, mural, um, fresco, by Michelangelo, Michelangelo, in the Sistine Chapel on the ceiling. Um, it is the creation of Adam, sometimes called the finger of a god because it is a, a, a picture or a depiction of God kind of pointing down to Adam, and Adam reaching out, his, his arm reaches out, his hand reaches out. They don't quite touch, but there is God reaching down to, to uh, Adam, and Adam is reaching out to God. I think that is a great picture of grace and faith. Grace comes from God. It's unmerited favor. It's the hand of God reaching down to man on the grounds of the gospel. What was accomplished at the cross of Calvary? God in his grace now reaches down to man. Faith is the outreach of the man to God to receive it. That's the picture there. And I think that illustrates it pretty well. Grace, unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. God gives us that which we can't earn, don't deserve. The opposite side of that particular coin is mercy. God withholds that which we do deserve, grace and mercy. And so they were polluting this gospel, the truth of this gospel, by saying, here, you need to be circumcised. You need to add to that particular gospel. And of course, that's problematic. We don't have the time to go through. You know, <clears throat> on the one hand, we see the fearfulness of uh, Peter, but we see Paul's boldness. He calls them to task. Now, Paul, remember, is a relatively young Christian compared to Peter. And the Jews are principally looking to Peter. You know, they're following Peter. He's kind of the the principle among them. But Paul stands back and he deals with the situation, the error that, uh, that is being brought in 
and he deals with that situation. He's the boldness. And so I withstood him, Peter, because he was to blame. He was to blame. Now Peter corrected it down the road. You know, there's a difference between, between uh, being perfect as far as sin goes and being blameless. We're sinners and we sin. But we, would, we ought always to be blameless. Blamelessness is when we have, when we are made aware of the sin and deal with it. We can't be held to blame for it. I have something at ought with a brother or a sister. I go to them to take care of that particular issue with them. If they reject that, and I in good conscience went to them with that, they're not blameless, but I am. Do you see it? I may have done the sin and I go in and apologize try and make things right, and they don't accept it. Even though I sinned, I'm blameless because I took the action, the initiative to take care of it before the Lord, and the other brother didn't accept that. Though they didn't sin, now they are in sin and to blame. And so... Paul here brings this issue out of um, that he withstood Peter because he was to blame because he was the one that was permitting this going on in the assembly here in, the, in uh, uh, Antioch. He continues on that in verse 15, uh, 14, let me reread that. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are by nature, or we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. No flesh can be justified. Now what, there's a great deal, this section is, pregnant with meaning. We don't have the time to go through all of this, but the principal section, or the, I keep using that principle, right? Well, it is. The principal issue here is justification. Justification. What is justification? Well, justification is the establishment of a favorable position before a judge. It is an act of God. It is an immutable reckoning 
in the mind of God whereby he declares someone right. Now, does he do that spuriously? Does he just kind of say, okay, well, you know, Dave here will just make him justify him. Well, no, that would be certainly against his character, would it not? So how does he achieve in his mind, how can he say that we are vindicated judicially? How can he do that? Well, we're given the process, I think. There are three imputations uh, in the word of God that are meaningful to us. The doctrine of imputations. There are three things, I think, that uh, are applicable here. First of all, there is the Adam and the sin of Adam. When Adam fell, he as the federal head of humanity, of man, mankind, imputed that sin nature to everyone that followed thereafter, to his posterity. And as he passed that on through his son, then he passed it on through to his son, and so on and so forth. And we see it all the way through to our present time. That's why, by the way, and we don't have time to touch on it, but why, that's why the importance of a virgin birth, isn't it? That sin comes by the seed of man, not by woman. Christ was born by the seed of the woman. No sin. In him was no sin. He did no sin, true. And he could not sin. He did not sin when it references it to man. He could not sin when it references it to God. But in him was no sin. The point is that that sin nature was imputed to us. And now we sin, not out of a position of innocence and, you know, and we fall when we sin. No, we sin because we are, by nature, sinners. Then God takes that sin of mankind and judicially transfers it at the cross on the Lord Jesus Christ, the sin-bearer. And the Lord Jesus bears the sin of all of mankind. Now, I know what might be going on in the minds of some of you. I get this question all the time. If the Lord Jesus Christ bore all of the sins of every human being, then how come not all of them are saved? We don't have a great deal of time to explore that either. But let me just give you perhaps a picture out of the Old Testament, the 16th chapter of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. You remember that? Two goats, the goat upon which 
the Lord's lot fell and the goat upon uh, on which the, the lot for the nation fell, man. The, lot upon, uh, the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell was killed. The blood was brought into the very holy of holies, sprinkled before the mercy seat, accepted by him, and we could tell because there he is, the high priest comes out. Accepted by God. All of the virtue of the work of Christ on behalf of all of mankind accepted before God. The high priest comes out and now he stands before the congregation of Israel. And he places his hands upon the goat that is left living. And he's a representative of the nation. And he's identifying the nation with the sin that would be taken by that goat out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. The two aspects of the cross. God is satisfied with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. But in order to be saved, I have to place my hands upon him as my substitute. It's available to all, but it is only going to be received by those that are willing to accept Christ as their substitute. You see that? So, the death of Christ is available. The effects of that are available to every human being but only those that call upon him, identify themselves with him as savior, are saved. But there's a third transfer, as if it were, a third imputation. Christ receives all of the, all of the sins of mankind are transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ and then the righteousness of God is transferred, is imputed to the believer. Now we have to be careful here. It's not the righteousness of Christ. It's the righteousness of God that is imputed to us. And so now, with the righteousness of God being imputed to the believer, that is the ground on which God now can justify the sinner. He sees us right before the bar of God, declared as being righteous, as bearing the righteousness of God, in Christ. And so we have this, this judicial transfer, as if it were. First, the sin upon Christ, the sin of humanity, my sin, we can individualize it, upon Christ. 
and then the righteousness of God upon me in that transaction. Isn't that marvelous? What a wonderful God we have. And now he can act justly in justifying us. And so he looks at us and he says, justified in Christ Jesus. It's a one-time action by God in heaven on behalf of the individual. One time. Now there's a righteousness that is ongoing. We'll see perhaps we're done with today, so uh, this morning, so we'll have to continue on uh, this in the, uh, this evening. But we, we'll see that there is the righteousness now imparted for living by the Spirit of God. But this is judicial in nature. It, it took place one time and one time only. And God can look at us and say, justified, justified. What a blessing. Dear Christian, what richness we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, salvation by grace through faith, the act of a God declaring us righteous and justifying us before himself. Let us pray. Father, we do praise thee and give thee thanks for thy grace and kindness to us, Father. Where would, be, where would we be, O blessed Father, if you did not reach out to us in grace and brought to us all of the work of our blessed Savior on our behalf? Oh, how we thank thee, O oh, blessed Father, that we can indeed trust thee and by faith receive that which thou hast given us as a gift. We do ask, O oh, gracious Father, that we might, as we depart from this place this morning, take something of the greatness of thy work on our behalf with us and marvel again at thy great love exhibited in the person of thy lovely son. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen.